Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Lennon and McCartney, Lennon and McCartney, Lennon and McCartney. That was the rousing call of the two members of the Beatles. But what about Harrison and Starkey? Why couldn't they have been the rival to Lennon and McCartney? And certainly in the early 70s, there seemed to be a good case that they were the rivals to Lennon and McCartney, because that's the point we're trying to make today, isn't it? It is. At uh, the early 1970s, 1970, 72, 3, 4, no one to touch Harrison and Starkey, the new dream team. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, they had uh, collaborations, they had hit singles, and we'll come on to those later on, but... It is an interesting thing to think about. When you do look at the Fab Four, as they were called, there was definitely the Lennon-McCartney half and there's the Harrison-Starkey half. And you kind of wonder what their allegiances were or how they came together as, I hate, I'm not calling them the other two, but there's certainly a division between the Lennon-McCartney axis and the Harrison-Starkey axis. Yeah, I think the Lennon-McCartney act as the songwriters, they just attracted so much attention The Beatles were a new concept in this idea that these guys wrote their own songs. They weren't cruising down Denmark Street looking for cover versions. They very quickly established that they were just a hit-making machine. And it was all based around the Lennon-McCartney dynamic. So inevitably, they become the focus. So for all that the Beatles are a band, essentially with four front men, in the sense that you have four distinct personalities... Lennon and McCartney dominate. They certainly dominate in terms of cash and revenue. Mm. So to that extent, you know, as early as 1966, Ringo was referencing the fact that he doesn't have as much money as John and Paul. George will reference this as well. And we know from Mark Lewison's research that there was a separate agreement between Brian Epstein and John and Paul, that he was going to manage the Beatles, but he was also going to manage them as songwriters. So I think inevitably, George and Ringo are thrown together. And there is a very, you know, if you take the Beatles, like Hamburg Beatles, where it's, Mm -hmm. you know, where you've Pete Best in the band, plus or minus Stu, but it's very much John, Paul and George. There's very much a fab three involved. And then when Ringo comes in, we perhaps never really notice how the axis shifts, because Paul and George are friends before... John is 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 part of the group, which is an interesting dynamic. And those three, the Japage three, so to speak, are the, the nexus or the nucleus of all of this activity before Ringo comes along. And George is up until sixty two and they start, you know, looking at publishing and all the rest, it's very much John Paul and George. And George then gets slightly moved into a different position. Yeah, I think when they are just a group doing covers and right up to the DECA uh, audition uh, material, George is pretty much an equal partner in the sense that he has an equal share of the mic time. You know, they basically rotate John, Paul, George, John, Paul, George, taking lead vocals. Once they start recording, once the Lennon-McCartney axis is established as a songwriting uh, powerhouse, George is relegated to two songs or one song per side and you know, three songs and Revolver is the exception rather than the rule. So it's it's uh, one or two tracks per album. And that is a distinct shift. And it coincides with Ringo coming into the band. And George is instrumental in getting Ringo into the band. And I think pretty quickly he and Ringo establish a very strong, very long-lasting friendship. And as you say, it is interesting, and maybe the subject of another podcast, the fact that the original partnership, the original two friends in the three-man lineup, are Paul and George, not Paul and John. Yes, and by bringing in Ringo, it is the definition of, oh, now they are truly four of them. And it does 
change George's relationship with the band and the work and the Lennon McCartney side of things. So as you say, you know, George suggests, uh, he's the first person to suggest that Ringo should replace Pete Best. And there's this yin and yang where George is the youngest person in the group and Ringo is the oldest person in the group. And George is aware of Ringo from his days in Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. He is. And George writes about this in a letter back to his friend uh, Arthur Kelly. And this is recounted, uh, there's a book by Michael Seth Ringo. Coincidence, no relation. Uh, writes <laughs> writes a book uh, called With a Little Help. And he says, it was during the time in Hamburg that George, writing a long letter to his pal Arthur Kelly, first mentioned Ringo, although not by name. George described Rory Storm and the Hurricanes as, quote, crummy but had nice things to say about the guy behind the drum kit. So he wrote, the only person who is any good in the group is the drummer. So he spots Ringo. Now, Ringo is in their orbit. He's there, there are lots of groups in Liverpool, so they know of him. George will say, I was quite responsible for stirring things up. I conspired to get Ringo in for good. I talked to Paul, then John, until they came round to the idea. So it's very much George is, is working actively to get Pete out, Ringo in. And it's, as we all know, it's a decision that makes the band the band. Um, the George is very much on Ringo's side. You know, when they're touring, Ringo kind of rotates sharing rooms with George and with Paul and with John, which is a very good idea. But yeah, it's George that suggests that this is the quickest way of integrating Ringo into the band is for them to sort of rotate and share. And I think Ringo is always conscious and grateful. I think, again, this is something that Mark Lewis has said. Ringo is grateful to George because he knows that George is the one that got him into the band. And there is that, I think, apocryphal story that George gets a black eye defending Ringo. So in the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Pete forever, Ringo never, uh, a storm that uh, happens after Pete is, is uh, uh, dismissed from the band, a punch is thrown, George gets a black eye. Mark Lewison would say, not really about Ringo, more about a disgruntled boyfriend. Uh, not happy that his, his his girl is screaming at the Beatles. But mm. Ringo takes it as George standing up for him and defending his position in the band and never really forgets that. And George is loyal. He doesn't think they should tour with Jimmy Nickel when Ringo falls sick. He thinks that's a bad idea. And that's, I think he's got a point to make, you know. Yeah, I think... I think that is quite telling. Now, obviously, there's a there's a lot of money. Uh, you don't have the developed touring system that you have now where you would have insurance and uh, everything would be safeguarded against. But George Martin talks about this, and he says they nearly didn't go on the Australian tour. George is a very loyal person, and he said, if Ringo's not part of the group, it's not the Beatles. I don't see why we should do it, and I'm not going to. And it took Brian and my persuasion to tell George that if he didn't do it, he would be letting everybody else down. George has talked about this, and he said, with all due respect to Jimmy, we shouldn't have gone on the tour without Ringo. It wasn't the fabs. I couldn't understand it, really. It was silly. You'd have to be in yes for that kind of thing to happen. (laughs) I mean, I can't really imagine the Rolling Stones touring without their drummer. Harry Hill looked to camera. Anyway... Um, <laughs> and uh, George and Ringo lived together in Knightsbridge in a block of flats that Brian Epstein was also there in. Um, you know, so they were close. So it's it, it's a sort of monkeys style <laughs> setup. So they have a house in Wadden House in William Mews in Knightsbridge, flat number seven. Uh, look for it; it's still there. And uh, so yeah, well, so they, there is this sense of them kind of buddying up. Because they're, you know, they're down from Liverpool. They're in big, scary London. And uh, they're kind of living, yeah, like students in a flat. It's very nice. I have to say, it's a very nice block of flats. I, I would have to say that. And, uh, yeah, I doubt they, um, you know, did much cooking there. I imagine it was all entertaining <laughs> and, and, and going out to clubs and whatnot. And it's where they all meet up before they head off to the palace to get their MBEs in 1965. So if a spliff were smoked before they got their MBEs, probably there, not in the palace itself. It happened there. Yeah, and, and George moves out in 1965 when he's um, married to Patty and, and moves out to Esher. But it's telling that, seemingly, George Harrison never lives on his own. Ever. Ever. No. Always always, always hmm. got someone there. So that's quite quite nice. Um, so, so that's the kind of the background to 
you know, the, 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 the George and Ringo dynamic. However, during the heyday of the Beatles, there's never any Harrison Starkey hits. Uh, they, they don't necessarily form an overt alliance to, to put songs no. together. Um, e- even though, you know, maybe, maybe they could have. But you know, as you say, George gets his few songs through. Eventually, by the time we get to 68, Ringo gets a, a writing credit on an album. And, but as 69 emerges, that's when you start to see more kind of concerted George and Ringo type activity, I think. I think so. It's as, as the band starts to fracture the friendship between George and Ringo seems solid. So at a time when John and Paul are pulling apart, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case uh, with, with, with George and Ringo. And in a way, that's understandable. Apple is John and Paul's idea. George ultimately will become quite enthusiastic on the production side, but that's very much John and Paul's baby. George and Ringo are along for the ride. They are less well-off. And the other thing that I think is interesting is when you look, who were the first two Beatles to expressly jump ship? So we can talk about, you know, George, 66, I'm no longer a Beatle with the touring, et cetera, et cetera. But it's Ringo that leaves in 1968, in August 1968, and George, who leaves in January 1969. And, you know, if you're doing the sort of the amateur psychology point here, you could say that they perhaps had less to lose or they had less invested in it or they had, you know, put less into it. You know, as, as you said, Apple is a John and Paul type baby. I'm thinking of, you know, the May 68 mm. John and Paul on the circuit in, 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 in America doing the talk shows, you know, bigging up Apple. It's not the four of them doing all of this. You know, they've had their four of them in, in, in India moment, but John and Paul are kind of leading the charge in telling the world about Apple. And, you know, we're getting into, the, you know, a few months later at the start of 69. As we all know, there is trouble in Apple. And, you know, we should do an episode about Alan Klein sometime. Sure. You know, he's starting to come into the picture. So, yeah, there is a, a natural division between John and Paul as these sort of writers and as, you know, I don't want to call them the engine of a lot of this stuff, but that is kind of the truth of it. And George and Ringo have more and more reminders that they are not John and Paul. Yes. I mean, I think John and Paul are very much the forward-facing side of Apple. You know, they're the people, as you say, that are out there doing the the promotion, etc. George has sort of receded slightly during the 67, early 68 Maharishi years. George is is sort of, if not the actual leader, he's the sort of spiritual leader of the band and he is bringing the others with him. That has turned out to be a dead end or there's sort of a slight embarrassment around the Maharishi. Um, you see that coming to the fore where in, in what I think is a very sort of excruciating scene in the Get Back, Peter Jackson's Get Back, is where John and Paul are sort of openly mocking the Maharishi and, and looking back on that episode. And George is sitting there. So... Yeah, I think George is sort of relegated slightly. Ringo always has been in that position. We have this notion of Ringo as being the sort of affable. He's the peacemaker. He's sort of friends with everybody. But he is the one that gets fed up first to the point where he walks out of the White Album sessions and goes off on holiday for a couple of weeks and uh, eats uh, squid. Yes, and Ringo always has this thing, and we'll come back to this later on, where he is, you know, the only Beatle who got to experience the Beatles outside of the Beatles before yes. he joined the Beatles. He, he has a sense of, he, he has a different perspective on, on what they are. And, you know, it's not that he felt in any way that, you know, because he was the last in, he could be the first to kick de- be kicked out. That was never an issue or, or, or on the cards. But he certainly has a very different perspective on, on, on all of this. And when you get into the start of 69... You know, we all know there's lots of odd power dynamics going on. But if you start to focus in on George and Ringo as a, a unit, you do start to see that coming through. And probably the first thing from the Let It Be Get Back is the, the, the collaboration that George and Ringo have on Octopus's Garden. This is probably my favourite scene from Let It Be, from the Michael Lindsay Hogg uh, film, yeah. is where you see... Ringo playing the piano and George has an acoustic guitar and is kind of standing over him and suggesting different chord progression and you can sort of and, and, and you can see them just working up the arrangement and George Martin 
comes over and stands and watches them. And there's a moment where Ringo is sort of concentrating very hard at the piano and, and George Harrison is strumming the guitar. And George Harrison looks at George Martin and there's just a grin on his mm. face. And it's a kind of, it's such a, a sort of childlike, isn't this, isn't this, isn't this fantastic? Isn't this great? Look, it's Ringo's writing a song. <laughs> and it's probably my favourite moment in the entire film. And I was very disappointed that although that scene is used in Get Back, it's from a different camera angle and it's slightly, mm. slightly doesn't give you, I think, quite the same glimpse of George's joy in being able to help Ringo write that song. Um, and I think that's probably the one occasion where I think Peter Jackson should should have stuck with the original framing uh, from from Let It Be. Well, don't forget, an original remastered version of the Let It Be film is going to follow in the wake of Peter Jackson's Get Back. Of course. We told in 2019. Yeah, I think when I first saw that, I, I think I perhaps initially perceived George's smile uh, as not necessarily joyous i kind of thought oh is he is he kind of making fun of ringo a little yeah. bit but actually that's not what's happening he is really happy that this thing is happening and you know he talks very fondly about the song octopus's garden and you know he's not trying to undermine ringo and he does make the song better he does elevate it he does and uh, you know ringo we know the story about ringo being on holiday and some ordering food and being given squid and the whole story comes out about octopuses or octopi gather shiny objects and make little gardens and Ringo will say it was a difficult time at the Beatles I just wanted to be under the sea too George in 1969 talking about the song because I think it's it's probably perceived it's like Yellow Submarine it's a kid's song Mm. it's just a kind of nursery rhyme song but George in 1969 says uh it's Ringo's song. It's only the second song Ringo wrote, and it's lovely. Ringo gets bored playing the drums, and at home he plays a bit of piano, but he only knows about three chords. He knows about the same on the guitar. I think it's a really great song, because on the surface, it's just like a daft kid song, but the lyrics are great. For me, you know, I find it, I find very deep meaning in the lyrics, which Ringo probably doesn't see, but all the things like resting our head on the seabed and we'll be warm beneath the storm, it's really great, you know, because it's like this level is a storm. And if you get sort of deep in your consciousness, it's very peaceful. Ringo's writing his cosmic songs without noticing. Yeah, and he's he's very astute. I think he's 100% right. You know, there is this vibe to the song, and, and that's the bit that makes it special. He's just talking about how he just wants to get away from it all. And the, there are other songs in the, in, the, in the mix at that time that are talking about that kind of like, you never give me your money is yeah. working on the same thing or once was a way to get back homewards, all that kind of stuff. It, when you see it through that lens, you're like, oh yeah, Octopus's Garden is the exact same way. There's a, I wish I could get out of here. I wish I could have some kind of inner peace. Oh, the, the song becomes a totally different thing. Absolutely. And uh, what I would say is I'm very glad it ended up being called Octopus's Garden and not the original Full title, which is in, in, in 1969, uh, Ringo was sort of interviewed by the NME and the reporter says, uh, among several tracks so far recorded is one by Ringo titled In an Octopus's Garden, brackets, or I Would Like to Live Up a Tree, close brackets. <laughs> yes, not quite finished. Not quite finished. Um, and, and we see, uh, you know, Ringo is is kind of hammering out these songs at a piano in the movie. And we see Taking a Trip to Carolina is, yep. you know, literally the very definition of a song fragment. It's very funny. Yeah, it is very funny. And uh, I say, I think it is, those are the highlights for me. Ringo brings a degree of kind of levity and humour and lightness to the film. And, you know, he knows full well, he only knows three chords, uh, you know, on the piano or three chords. And he knows that these are just fragments, but he's having such a good time doing it. Um, So the song gets recorded properly um, on the 26th of April 1969. That's when they start. And you have a take with Ringo doing a guide vocal, which we hear on Anthology 3 and 96. And it's, you know, Paul on bass guitar, Ringo on drums, George's lead guitar on three, and John doing some rhythm guitar, and then some guide vocals. And we give a take of this also on the 50th anniversary issue of uh, Abbey Road. But if we're looking at the George angle of things, George does lift that song. He plays that fantastic introductory guitar rift. He gives the uh, riff, he gives the song a bit of a motor, so to speak. He really pushes it along. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any suggestion 
here that, or probably ever with a Ringo song or Ringo vocal, that the band are giving less than 100%. You know, John is, they're all on the song, which is not always the case on Abbey Road. George plays yep. fantastic uh, guitar. Paul is sort of overdubbing bass and they're doing backing vocals and it's a complicated arrangement and they're 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 doing this but i think george has clearly by this point developed the song with ringo and knows exactly what he's going to do and if you lift the solo out of the i I think the solo would be more appreciated if it wasn't in the kind of jaunty kid song yes Uh, you know the musicianship behind the solo slightly gets lost because of where it is but it's a fantastic solo and a great sound that they get there's a particular tone there uh that i really yep. like and it does sound like a, a you know a band playing it's not uh it's not this kind of um studio type concoction that you kind of get with yellow submarine it's it's just got a jam on it it's a nice feeling it's got a jam yeah it's yeah. very good uh, so yeah that that main recording is on the 26th of april there's some paul piano on the 29th of april and then as is the one with the abbey road sessions it's put to one side and finished off in july paul does a, on the 17th of July a bass part and does some backing vocals with George and sound effects and Ringo blowing his bubbles into a glass of water and all that kind of thing. And then Ringo finally does his proper lead vocals on the 18th of July and Ringo has his second song for a Beatles album, Done. And the money rolling in. <laughs> the money rolling in. There were mono mixes done for an unreleased mono Abbey Road. I wonder what that would have sounded like. It's kind of weird. I don't know. I don't know why. It's the only song, as far as I'm aware, it's the only song for Abbey Road that was purposely mixed. There are mono editions of Abbey Road in the world. Brazil comes to mind, but it's just a fold down of the stereo. Yeah. Um, but the, for some reason, there was a specific mono mixes were made. It's a pity they didn't throw that onto the mono masters because we got the unreleased Yellow Submarine mono masters in that collection. Um, so they could have thrown that in as well. They could. They could. But they didn't. Next time. <laughs> yes, take my money, etc. But what this kind of shows is George is very much simpatico with Ringo, that they have a way of working. George finds Ringo fun person to work with, an enjoyable person yeah. to work with. There's no hang-ups between the two of them uh, yet. <laughs> they're quite... Um, you know, they're quite happy in amongst all the turmoil that's going on. And and that's something we've talked about before, about the craziness of 69, is that when they are making music, some of that stuff manages to stay outside. But for George and Ringo, it's kind of a, a bubble within a bubble and probably an even happier place to be. I think that's right. And it, it's a cliche that Ringo is the one that nobody falls out with. That's not strictly true. You know, we know Paul and Ringo and the letter that was delivered in March, etc. But I think there is a particularly close relationship between George and Ringo. That's not to say, you know, Ringo's playing on Plastic Owner Band, etc. But he also delivers for George as one of the members of the sort of the, if you remember, there are two core house bands that George puts together for All Things Must Pass. And Ringo mm. is, is sort of a key member of one of those uh, one of those bands. Well, that's the thing. Octopus's Garden kind of sets a curtain razor for for how they are going to be together so as we move into 1970 as you say we are now into the solo era and Ringo is on uh, Plastic Ono Band but he is a key member of All Things Must Pass and does Ringo recall any of this? I've never really heard Ringo being interviewed about All Things Must Pass No it's funny George writes his memoir of sorts really a sort of a look back at individual songs in 1980 and he seems not to have really remembered Ringo or how much Ringo contributed. So when that book was reissued in 2017, Ringo gives an interview to the LA Times and he said, when George was originally doing the book, he called me up and said, Ringo, did you play on All Things Must Pass? And I said, I don't remember. People were on a lot of medication in those days. So he checked and called me back and said, you were on about two thirds of it. And then he wrote that in the book that I didn't remember whether I'd played on the album, but he didn't say that he forgot too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so again it's this you know you and I and people like us pour over every detail of every song and we know who played on what song and when these guys can't remember <laughs> thank god for podcasts is what you're saying where we can roll up our sleeves and tell you the truth uh, of the matter but by the time we get to the end of 1970 um yeah Ringo has been a key component um on all things must pass he's got this relationship with George and out of the Beatles break 
we kind of roll, in, roll into um, Ringo's solo career. And speaking of a break, we're going to take a break right now. Brilliantly done. <laughs> End of part one. Intermission. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So if we're focusing in on George and Ringo, we come to the start of 1971 and It Don't Come Easy, which is Ringo's first big proper solo pop single. Yes. And, you know, one of the best things to come out of that uh, post-split period, I think. But this is a song that has actually been kicking around probably as a fragment since 1968. Ringo will say frequently, you know, I'm, I'm, I can write two verses and a chorus, but I can't get any further than that. So the, the song is originally called You've Got to Pay Your Dues. Ringo will subsequently acknowledge that George helped him write it. But at the time, this comes out as a solo Ringo writing credit and he says he had to combat the original image as the downtrodden drummer you don't know how hard it is to fight that so this is Ringo if you look at that period he's done Sentimental Journey he's not doing an album he's not touring he's doing movies and this is really the first song that he has written the first big hit single the first Richard Starkey original that, that comes out after the split and George isn't credited as a writer on this, but he Ringo does say later on, I wrote this song with the one and only George, he says in 1998 on a VH1 Storytellers. Now, maybe, maybe this is his memory playing tricks on him again, but it is pretty much a George rewrite. George gets him to work on the, the lyrics for the final verse, and they kick that back and forth. So even though this song has been hanging around for a while, it's George, once again, who's able to do, put on the Ringo filter and, and, and bring the song to life. Pretty much, and you, you've got to think this is probably similar to the Octopus's Garden sequence that we see, where Ringo has got this fragment, George is picking it up and, and, and sort of developing it. Um, the one thing that George does is suggest that the lyrics should be about God. Yeah. And Ringo is sort of going, well, it's not really my thing. George said, well, Harry Krishna. And Ringo said, no, no, that's your bag, that's not my bag. And George said, well, just put a piece, piece, we can all agree. <laughs> um, that's a topic we can all agree on. So that that's how the verse, the, the sort of, develop but this is a song that is first attempted during the sentimental journey sessions in february 1970 so if you think of the sequence Mm. of this we've got um the last sort of official beatle session uh for i me mine and uh, ringo is recording his standards and george martin is involved 18th of february 1970 at abbey road they take a crack at you've got to pay your dues Ringo obviously is there, Klaus Wurman on bass, George on guitar, and Stephen Stills on piano. That's a good band. That's a very good band. It's a very good band. Yeah, we're right in the heart of our beloved Schrodinger's Beatles period. And, you know, Sentimental yes. Journey can be seen as a side project while you're trying to figure out what the, the Beatles are doing. But this is February 1970. There's, as you say, been the I Me Mind session the previous month. Let It Be is on the horizon. The Beatles aren't necessarily closed shop just yet potentially but here we have Ringo doing a solo original song for the first time it's it's definitely a statement of intent and it's in that window that we're so fascinated about where Paul is you know putting together maybe I'm amazed and John has instant karma coming out in February 1970 so they're all starting to go well if John's putting out instant karma then I'll start recording my song yeah, seems to be. It's it, it's tempting to think of Instant Karma, as I say, just as being the starting gun mm. for the commercial solo ventures kicking off. And this is this is you know it's George and Ringo plus Stephen Stills, Klaus Fuhrman. This is not a Beatles song. This is directly com- comparable to Instant Karma, and they're clearly taking it seriously. This is not just a a jam or something that is tossed off quickly. They tape twenty takes of the basic track with George overdubbing electric guitars. They work until 4, 4.40 in the morning. Then the next day they resume in the afternoon and start working on it again. Ringo's doing a lead vocal. George is not present. Some suggestion that Clapton, everybody's favourite <laughs> guitar player that isn't uh, George Harrison, and they completely decide to completely remake the song from scratch and they do 10 takes. Now, here we are on the 19th of February, and there are now essentially two different versions mm. of It Don't Come Easy. So where are they? Yeah. 
where are those tips? <laughs> why haven't where we heard are, them? You know, you know, why haven't we heard them? Well, it comes into that parallel universe of, oh, Instant Karma being a Beatles single and it don't come easy on the B-side. That would have been a hot rockin' ticket. That would have been a fantastic uh, single. Ringo, perhaps maybe not overburdened with original songs, uh, does another remake in March 1970, this time at Trident Studios. George is there, Klaus Foreman and Stephen Stills are there again. Mal Evans, our good friend, is there on tambourine. And there's a saxophone and trumpet from Ron Catermo. Uh, and they're working on that on the 8th of March, 1970, the 11th of March, 1970. And there is, uh, you know, at this point, the news leaks out that Ringo is doing a, a single. Yes. So again, we're still in the Schrodinger Beatles period. We haven't had Paul's press release in, in April. There is a rumour, uh, you know, you don't get those kind of people turning up at a studio without the press getting wind of it. And Apple put out a statement saying there is absolutely no plans for the record to be released as a single at the present time. Is the speculation this is going to be a Beatles single? This is going to be a Ringo Starr solo single? There's just speculation. The other interesting snippet that comes out at this time is that Mike Gibbons of Badfinger says that George offered that the song to Badfinger, but they didn't take it up. Um and I think Badfinger could have done a pretty good job with that song. Yeah, it's I got think. Badfinger vibes. Um, the song gets put to one side until the end of the year. And in October 70, when Plasticona Band and All Things Must Pass are happening, Ringo puts down his lead vocal with uh, George in the studio at Trident again. Um, and the Badfinger actually appear for this. So you've Ham and Evans uh, appearing on it. Gary Wright is playing piano on this time. So it's a song that's getting an awful lot of... Um, attention and studio fairy dust for uh, it still hasn't come out obviously it's yeah i mean they're still working on this and this is a version that is out there yeah and you can go onto youtube and you can hear this because george sings a guide vocal to sort of help ringo with the the pitch and the phrasing and you can hear at one point the backing singers pete ham and tom evans sing the phrase harry krishna Quite loudly. Now, it's still there in the final mix, but mixed down. But it's actually a pretty... It's a guide vocal, but it's an interesting take uh, uh, with, with George on lead vocal. So the single eventually gets uh, released in uh, April 1971. It's got the B-side of early 1970. And it is a, what you would call a smash hit. It is an absolute smash hit. Uh, so it gets the number four in the UK, number five in Melody Makers National Chart, reaches number four on the uh, Billboard Hot 100, but it actually gets number one in the Cashbox chart, number one in Canada. And it's outselling Power to the People and Another Day in Bangladesh. And I guess this is the point we're getting at, is there's an odd kind of power shift uh, at this time where you know Ringo is having hits and George is behind the desk co-writing, playing, guiding, you know, doing guide vocals uh, and making it happen. Yes. So, uh, uh, as you say, it's a power shift and that's a phrase that uh, Pete Doggett uses because he, he talks about My Sweet Lord, It Don't Come Easy, clearly outselling John and Paul. Um, so commercially, critically, Lennon's part of the people is not well received chart-wise or by the, by the critics. Paul is struggling after McCartney with Another Day. I love that song. I think it's great. But it, again, it, it doesn't sort of fit with the rock must say important things <laughs> and must sound big and important uh, in 1971. So, yeah, there is a shift. So the two Beatles that are dominating the charts at this point um, are, are, are Ringo and George. Mm. And George is just about to put together um, Bangladesh. And Ringo will feature there as well. Well, that's the thing. So yeah, Ringo has this big hit. It has a promo video on top of the pops. You know, he later performs it uh, for Scylla Black uh, on her TV show. But the, the the George Ringo dynamic continues, as you say, with the, the concert for Bangladesh. When George puts out the call, Ringo is happy to respond. Yeah, so he's in Spain uh, filming Blind Man with Alan Klein. We should do an episode on Alan Klein, I think. <laughs> Good idea. But So yeah, Ringo is the first one really to sort of say, yep, I'll be there. He suspends the filming uh, uh, to, to fly to New York. And this is the first time two, any two Beatles have been on stage together in America uh, since 1966. So it's a huge, huge event. And Ringo performs his big smash hit at Don't Come Easy. It's George and the band, which has Klaus Foreman and Jim Keltner and Badfinger and all the rest. Um, 
and he, he plays it at both Concert for Bangladesh shows in Madison Square Garden in August 1971. And forgets the lyrics. He does forget the lyrics. And in fairness, he did have the lyrics written out for him, but he just couldn't see them, apparently. Yeah, sort of with the stage lighting and stuff, he'll, he'll say, no, you know, the, the lyrics aren't complicated. But I have to say, if you if you listen to the performance, you can kind of don't necessarily get a sense that he forgets the lyrics, particularly. Yeah. I think he kind of carries it off quite well. But um, Robert Criscow, writing about that, um, describes Ringo and said uh, his demeanour is brimming with quiet happiness as if after eight years he still couldn't quite believe his own good fortune. And he talks about this and Ringo's kind of deferential quality and he said "What? this is why, unlike the others, he remains immune to the vagaries of our affection. Ringo is our representative on the Beatles. He is, we could be Ringo. Well, that's the thing I was kind of alluding to earlier on. He got to see them from the outside. He is he is a fan of the band. You know, he loves them. And, he, you know, irrespective of how they were able to work together or not able to work together, you know, he, he is the um, the audience in the Beatles. And we, we have said that before. Rolling Stone said at the time, seeing Ringo drumming and singing on stage has a joy in it that is one of the happiest feelings on earth still. So even in the hyper-serious world of 1971 rock, where, you know, how do you feel and what political entities do you feel like overthrowing today, Pete Townsend, um, you know, Ringo drumming and bringing joy, and the Beatles were all about joy, is still important, still infectious, and he cuts through at that concert. Maybe the spirit of the Beatles rests with Ringo Starr in 1970, 71, 72. Hmm. So the next song we kind of come to in the Ringo George axis is Back Off Boogaloo. So it's worth reminding ourselves at this point that Ringo hasn't put out a pop album, so to speak. He has put out his album of standards and his album of country music. But he's releasing these standalone pop singles, which continue to be successful. And the next successful single is um, Back Off Boogaloo, which comes out in March 1972. And again, George is producing this, and he is initially not a co-writer, but he is a co-writer. He is a co-writer as well as being a producer and as well as playing on it. So essentially it's the same trick as It Don't Come Easy. You know, successful standalone single, two of them collaborating and coming up with something wonderful. I love this song. I absolutely <laughs> love this song. Ringo will sort of say, give a lot of credit to Mark Boland, that Boogaloo was a a word that he used. Ringo is working closely with Mark Bolan, filming his concerts for Apple Films. Supposedly, over dinner one evening at Ringo's house, Mark Bolan used the word boogaloo so often that it just strikes Ringo. And it he comes up with the idea for a song. And he sort of very charmingly remember having to take batteries out of his kids' toys to power up the tape recorder. <laughs> To make a little recording of him playing the guitar and just to get the idea down on tip. But again, weirdly, Scylla Black makes another appearance and uh, <laughs> Ringo suggests uh, that Scylla should, uh, should, should, should sing the song. She does not. I can't really see Scylla doing that. She, she, she does have her eyes on the next Ringo George song, which we'll come to in a sec photograph, but she ain't getting that. I would like to hear uh, Scylla sing, wake up, meathead, don't pretend that you are dead, get yourself up off the cart, give us something tasty. You know, that that's pure Scylla, pure Scylla. That verse about Paul McCartney, you say? It is about Paul McCartney. Ringo had been mm-hmm. very critical of Ram <laughs> and saying he couldn't, see, you know, couldn't hear a single melody on it. And then he writes this, and, you know, wake up, meathead, don't pretend that you are dead. Uh, that. Don't pretend you're dead, Paul. Well, the the author Keith Badman says that Boogaloo had long been cited as Paul's nickname from Ringo, George and Lennon. I think I'd have to say no to that. That doesn't sound like a true thing. No, That doesn't ring true. I, 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 I've never heard them. I've never heard any interview or any. No, that doesn't, <laughs> no. That doesn't seem. <laughs> okay, that doesn't down seem with right. that. Um, but the song comes together in, in, in August, September 1971 in the shadow of the concert for for Bangladesh, and the, the main players are Ringo, obviously singing and on drums, George on guitar, Guy Wright on piano, Klaus on bass and saxophone. And, uh, yeah, it's a, a top ten hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, so it uh, gets to number nine in the Billboard chart in the States and uh, gets number two in the UK. And, again, it's another smash hit. Nice promotional video with uh, featuring Ringo's obsession with Frankenstein, so he's sort of being 
chased around yes. Tittenhurst Park. So at this stage, Ringo was living in Tittenhurst Park, but he hasn't he hasn't bought it yet. And uh, it's another very weird, very weird uh, video. And good contemporaneous reviews, Chris Welch and Melody Maker. A number one hit could easily be in store for the maestro of rock drums. There's a touch of the Mark Bolands in this highly playable rhythmic excursion. It's hypnotic and effective, ideal for jukeboxes and libel to send us all mad by the end of the week. And Ringo certainly was uh, the most glam rock Beatle, I would say. His music suited that type of music. Absolutely. He's hanging out with Mark Boland. He's kind of jamming with Boland and Elton John in the Apple Basement Studios. Very much, uh, very much uh, there at uh, at the advent of glam rock, which is not a thing in America at all. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't land the same way as it does in the in the UK. And um, this is one of the songs that Ringo re-records. He's re-recorded it a couple of times. There's the uh, "Stop and Smell the Roses" version, and there's a "Give More Love" version. There is the "Stop and Smell the Roses" version. I could well do without, but the "Give Give More Love" version from 2017 is fantastic because he mm. finds. The tape that he made in 1971, uh, he's moving house, he finds this demo, and he reports at the time, said, it's me singing back off Boogaloo with this great guitar. And I'm thinking, who the hell is that playing? And then I realise, I'm on guitar. The reel-to-reel captures the song coming through. So what he does is he re-records it in the sense of overdubbing. We get Jeff Lynne, Joe Walsh, all the greats. The greats. And the most interesting thing is the uh, authorship, the writing credit on the 2017 version is Richard Starkey and George Harrison. Yeah, this is the first time George is officially credited as a co-writer on the song. And yes. he, he, had, he had said previously that George had essentially co-written the song with him. But um, yeah, now it's the, the actual songwriting credits are Harrison Starkey. It's official. Mm. Uh, at this time, what's George doing? He's he's doing um, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth. That's becoming a big smash hit. He's just tossing out the number one singles as well. <laughs> and so this is, you know, he's, he's we've had the Bangladesh uh, single. And uh, then we have Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth. Now, Ringo is not on this track. He is on various other tracks uh, on the Living in the Material World album. But they're still working together. But again, in terms of chart performance, you've got George and Ringo. Now, Paul is obviously also putting out hit singles. My Love is up there uh, as well at this time. But again, George and Ringo dominating in terms of uh, both commercial and critical acclaim. So all roads are leading towards uh, 1973. And we then get to the biggie, you know, kind of the pinnacle of the George and Ringo partnership which is photograph and you know uh, we all know the song photograph i assume it is an amazing song and it is truly beetle tear music yes this for my money this is probably the best beatles solo single (laughs) hmm yeah I, i think there's a case for that and i i think it is the best beatles solo single that truly could have been a, a, a Beatles song. Uh, perhaps Instant Karma is up there as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if there had been a Beatles reunion album in 1973-74 and Photograph was the lead single from it or the lead song from it, yeah, that would have made perfect sense, I think. It absolutely has that sort of indefinable Beatles magic about it i think and uh it's as i say it's the only officially credited harrison starkey song that comes out uh during george's lifetime we know exactly where it starts life which is in the south of france in 1971 ringo has been at mick jagger's wedding in saint tropez with paul and linda there as well uh then george and patty boyd fly out and they go sailing on a yacht with all their closest friends, top stars, and Scylla Black. <laughs> and it's here where Scylla hears Ringo and George playing Photograph, you know, during one of their kind of musical evenings together. And, um, you know, sort of says, surprise, surprise, fellas, can I have a copy of that song and sing it for myself? Um, but Ringo says, no, it's too bloody good for you. I'm having it myself, which is, I think is fair comment. I think it's fair comment. I think that's fair comment, and um, 
it also shows that, you know, Ringo knew he was onto a winner with that song, you know? That's not going to be presented to Badfinger or or anyone else. Um, But thankfully, Scylla did eventually record it for her 2003 album, Beginnings, Greatest Hits and New Songs. Yes, fantastic. I can see it on the shelf behind you there. That's, uh, I mean, you know, I'm just waiting for the uh, the box set Super Deluxe Edition of that to come out, um, which hopefully will have a, a negative number of CDs in it. The song arrives in 1971. They start recording it in, in 1972. Um, but So it does arrive during the Living in the Material World sessions. It does, and it's recorded there. Now, again, I have to hold my hand up and say I've never heard this version, but there's a pattern coming here with Ringo songs. So there are early versions of these songs, all of which would look very nice and sound very nice <laughs> on a Ringo Star Apple Years box set that either of us are willing to put together for free Absolutely. from the archives. Yes. We do not mind. Um, but the song gets re-recorded in March 73. And this is part of, you know, we've done an episode on the Ringo album, so you can go off and listen to that. Uh, but this is Ringo's first big proper pop album. And you have the expertise of Richard Perry as producer. And he's incorporating kind of Phil Spectrist techniques in making the song sound big and huge and emotional. Yes, I mean, it's a, the, so the acoustic guitars here, the orchestra, there's a choir, you've got Nicky Hopkins, Bobby Keys, Jim Keltner. Everything comes together here. But I think George's guitar work, absolutely perfect. And it's, it's just, honestly, I just absolutely love this song. Uh, and there's a B-side down and out that, um, that, that is done at the same time. So Photograph is obviously going to be the lead single for the Ringo album, which is going to be a huge seller. Um, but George is also on the B-side, Down and Out, with Gary Wright and Klaus Foreman again. Yeah, and it's a very, what I would say is it's a, it's a pretty ordinary song, but mm-hmm. it is completely elevated by George Harrison's guitar playing in the middle. So it's a very similar sound to Back Off Boogaloo. Richard Perry adds a horn section, he gets a co-producer credit, but this is another one of those Ringo-George collaborations where Ringo produces something fairly... You know, solid basics, not going to set the world on fire. George delivers a very nice production and uh, a sort of stinging guitar solo in the middle. And again, there's a promotional film shot at Tittenhurst Park. And yeah, the, the it's a winning formula. It's the third of these George Ringo singles with a video and it's a smash hit. Somebody pointed out to me, I never knew why Ringo did this in the video, but he sort of puts his hand over his mouth when he's, the camera comes on to him and he sort of sings the lyric behind his hand. But apparently it was to get around the uh, miming ban. Ah, I hadn't so, that. so, yeah, so I think, you know, yeah, fun <laughs> fact. Um, and reviews at the time are ecstatic. I like this one from Record Mirror, which says, uh, you know, listeners would be singing along with this song. It's going to be a giant smash. They'll be singing along for the next 10 years, at least. And the thing I find interesting about that is, 10 years earlier in the pop world, there's this kind of notion of, well, we won't be around in a year's time or two years' time. And at this point, pop music is like, no, 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 this is going to have legs and this one is going to last the way, you know, we've had songs that have lasted for 10 years at this point and this is one of these songs. It's an interesting tilt in the music reviewing dynamic. Yeah, it's an instant classic. And I, I, yeah, this this is the Beatles reunion single that should have been. Um, so yeah, the um, the uh, the Stephen Thomas of All Music says Photograph was a gorgeous collaboration between George and Ringo, a track that ranks among the very best post-Beatles songs by any of the Fab Four. And you just have to say, yeah, for that. Yeah, it's still the case. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even though this is, I think, the pinnacle of what we're trying to get at today, which is the George-Ringo axis, there is the track Sunshine Life for Me, which is also on the, the Ringo album. And this is a, a song which, uh, you know, George is involved in. It's quite a good band playing on this song. It is quite a good band. It's uh, the band that are playing on this song. <laughs> yes. Uh, George Harrison, Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm, uh, David Brumberg on banjo and fiddle, Garth Hudson, Rick Danko, Klaus Vorman, and Vinnie Poncia on backing vocals. I do not know Vinnie Poncia, I have to admit. Um, uh, it gets a shout out in I Me Mine as being a fun session and a good track. Um, and it is a fun song. And again, we've, we've done the Ringo album. But it's also at this time that the wheels kind of come off the George Ringo wagon a little bit. Yes. So, th- as you say, this is the pinnacle. 
because of what happens next. But you've got to think, you know, where could that have gone? So if when Ringo was making Goodnight Vienna, which I think everyone agrees is a good, solid album, but doesn't really quite reach the heights of Ringo. Um, you know, but if George had been there and George had been contributing, but yes, uh, something happens at this point, which I've, I've in the notes I've written down, the Mo question. <laughs> yes, so the story is that George had an affair with Ringo's wife, Maureen Starkey. And yes. it is a very, uh, it's not a great look for George, again. No. Um, and what I think is interesting about this point in time from the George Ringo axis is that you have a, you know, in this notion of the Fab Four and these guys being the Fab Two, you have a separation from Paul McCartney legally. So Paul isn't really in the mix. You have a separation from John Lennon geographically because uh, he's now based in the States. And you have George and Ringo in the UK still at this point. And yeah, George is hanging out with Maureen Starkey, who's going over to Friar Park. And it's all very strange. It's all very strange. I like the way you use the phrase hanging out. Because <laughs> something's hanging out. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, we, we've got to kind of break this down because... I don't know that George has ever commented, and perhaps understandably so. The key witness for the prosecution is Paddy Boyd. The key witness, I suppose, for the defence is Maureen Starkey, is Mo herself. But Paddy Boyd certainly recounts the fact that Maureen Starkey would come over to Friar Park and hang out with George, be in the studio. Sometimes they'd be in a room, the door would be locked. Patty Boyd didn't know what was going on. She telephones Ringo. Uh, you know, if you want to know where your wife is, he's over here with George. And, yeah, <laughs> George has a reputation. Well, George has a reputation. And, you know, we've talked about this elsewhere. And, you know, Maureen Starkey says they were only having a spiritual affair, that they connected a lot on a spiritual level. The other kind of witness in this thing is is Chris O'Dell. Yes. Who says that at a gathering, George says to Ringo, you know, Ringo, I'm in love with your wife. And Ringo apparently says, better you than someone we don't know. Um, But I'm in love with your wife. I mean, George has form. George does have form. And I think that is probably, George's reputation is probably what, carries the most weight here. But when I've read Chris O'Dell's book and she is an eyewitness to this exchange. So they are sitting around. Chris O'Dell is living in Fire Park at this time. George and Patty and Maureen and Ringo are there. Chris O'Dell is there. They're sitting around a table. They've had a meal. George asks for a cigarette and Maureen produces George's favourite cigarettes. And George says, Ringo, I think I'm in love with your wife. No, that could just be, she's a great little woman you've got there. Uh, look, you know, the perfect perfect hostess, She's 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 got cigarettes, uh, and it's my favourite type of cigarette. It could, Depending on how you read that, that could be a okay, perfectly so innocent, but Chris O'Dell describes the atmosphere changing and that George was sort of making a declaration. I find that, hard to believe. I'm not saying that there wasn't an affair. I think that probably happened. We can say that. No one is still alive to sue us. <laughs> but I don't think George made an overt declaration. This is more like something Eric Clapton would do um, when speaking to George about Patty, you know, and I think that happened. But I don't think that that happened. I can't see that happening. Yes. Yeah, it does play either way. It could be, Ringo, I'm in love with your wife. Or, Ringo, I think I'm in love with your wife. Yes. Look, she's great, the way she's done it. Yeah. Okay. But what is true is that things are never the same again. George and Ringo are never the same again. Ringo and Maureen separate mm-hmm. and fall apart. Ringo essentially kind of slowly moves out of the UK or spends more and more time outside of the UK. Um, but the George-Ringo alliance does not exist in the same way after this. No. And that, that most obviously uh, features on Ringo's next album, where George just neither writes a song nor appears. Now, the interesting thing around this time is 
Apple is sort of winding down and winding up. There is a serious discussion going on as to whether George and Ringo will buy Apple Records. So mm. you'd think if they had gone ahead with that, now it didn't go ahead because I think they were sort of advised, look, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of baggage with Apple and the various companies and Klein and all the rest of it. If you want record labels, you want to replicate what you were doing with Apple in terms of uh, you know, nurturing new talent, go and form your own record companies, which is what they will both do with Dark Horse and the fantastically named Ringo Records. Irish record level. <laughs> well, yeah, it's but it's it's 1973 when they have a you know this notion that they might buy Apple, and if this other stuff is going down in 1973 as well, that could also be the thing that scuppers the the the, the deal or the the possibility. Yeah, can you imagine if they had bought Apple and then Ringo had found out that George was having an affair with his wife? Awkward, awkward, I think that's what awkward. Say possibly more more awkward than nineteen seventy. Possibly in terms of uh, <laughs> think of, think of the legal fees. Um, yeah, they do set up Dark Horse and Ringo Records. Uh, Dark Horse does become George's record label. He you know gets a distribution deal through A and M and puts his records out through Dark Horse and all the rest. Ringo doesn't put his records out on Ringo Records, which I think in the software business is called dog fooding. He doesn't trust his uh, record label enough to put his own records on it, even though he's let go from his contract uh, in the mid-70s, and he could have done that. And um, But uh, yeah, the Ringo Records is shut down in 1978, whereas we still have Dark Horse going today. I think, I think uh, Ringo Records, that would be a nice little kind of discreet collection that you could pick up. I've, ne- I've never seen... Um, I don't have any records released on the Ringo label. I've heard the David Henschel yeah. album, which is an instrumental version of the Ringo album. But oh, Bobby yeah. Keys uh, was on the label. Graham Bonnet, if you remember Graham Bonnet, I only know him as the singer of uh, from Rainbow, Since You've Been Gone era. Oh, yes. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, it doesn't last, doesn't, doesn't last long. Third, uh, Dark Horse still going. 2023, Danny has resurrected that and is putting out new releases as well as archival releases. Yeah, for it's currently Cat it. Stevens' label. Um, so we that kind of get into the aftermath of what happened next. It, you know, George and Ringo, you know, they don't live apart for long. You know, George does get a song onto Ringo's 1976 album, uh, Ringo's Rotisserie. Uh, Ringo's wrote a gavour. Um, it should have been. It should have been called Ringo's Rotisserie. <laughs> um, but a song that he threatened to sue Ringo about because of the guitar solo. Wonderful story. This is this is so funny. Yeah. So George, on the face of it, is too busy uh, to participate in the sessions. But Ringo knows this song. This is a song that dates back to the, the sort of late 60s, early 1970s. Again, Scylla Black is in the running uh, to get this song at one point. Uh, what could have been? But but yes, clearly something goes wrong and George threatens to sue Ringo. Now, I don't know that this got further than that, but there is that Aspel and Co. appearance that they make together in 1988, which is, as you've said, is just a fantastic piece of television. But George is clearly mortified because Ringo suddenly says, well, the last time we were crossed was when Georgie sued me. <laughs> and George says, yeah, yeah, that was the last time. We're always crossed. Yeah, yeah, we're still crossed. The last time he called and said, I'm going to sue you. You are not, George. Don't say that. No, no, I'm going to sue you because he wrote this song and I had it mixed by somebody else and he didn't like the mix. So I said, sue me if you want, but I'll always love you. And George is clearly <laughs> mortified that this is being said, but kind of has to carry it off. So I think... It's because Lon Van Eaton does a very George-like guitar solo and perhaps George felt he was there was a bit of sleight of hand or duping of the public going on. Yes, um, but you know George is still in Ringo's orbit. He appears in the Ognir Rats TV special in 1978, right up the top with his big curly perm, yep. doing a slightly wacky Python-esque monologue in his, you know, not totally... He's always a little bit uncomfortable when he's delivering the comedy. <laughs> um, a little bit uncomfortable, and there's a Ruttles reference. There is. He just it's 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 a press conference opens, and he's just come in at the tail end of a question that George is answering, and he just said, "Well, I think it was the trousers." Yes, and then goes on to answer the next question, which is it's very funny. Very it funny. it is funny, and it is fantastic if you are a fan 
and who isn't, of George Harrison's Perm. You can check out his appearance on that show, what, Disco, that German TV show, Disco. It's an amazing, it's an amazing perm. It's an amazing perm. But the reality is George remains in the Ringo universe. We've done our Stop and Smell the Roses episode because George contributes Rack My Brain, very George-type song, Ringo's last, you could say, proper big hit single. And, uh, you know, there's the Princess Trust gig in 1987 where George and Ringo appear on stage again. Um, Ringo appears on Cloud Nine. And most importantly, he appears in uh, the When We Was Fab video. That's a very overt piece of George and Ringo uh, behaviour. Business. George and Ringo business. Yes, they're doing <laughs> Beatles business. It's it very is funny. It's very amusing. It is Beatles business. You know, the song is overtly about the Beatles. Cameos from everybody to, you know, Elton John, Neil Aspinall, Paul Simon, allegedly, <laughs> or not. Check out our Kevin Godly, Godly interview. Yep. But it's very funny. It is very amusing. Ringo will appear at George Harrison's Albert Hall gig, um, George's last gig. So they're still, clearly, you know, they, they've made up. But they're not operating in the same way. No as those first two or three years post-split. There's also the Tom Petty Won't Back Down video, which for some reason Ringo is in, even though he's not on the record. I don't know why, but yeah. it's it's um, Ringo being Ringo and, and, and knocking around. So they are um, they are in, in the realm together. Um, when Ringo gets back into proper music making in 1998, there is one last little um, burst of George and Ringo activity. This is for the Vertical Man album in 1998. And this is really, despite sort of uh, weight of the world, time takes time, etc. Ringo will say, this is the first time I've really been involved in my record, whereas before I just sort of pick out other people's songs or songs other people had written that I thought were vaguely trying to say what I would like to say. On this, we're really trying to say what I want to say. Thank you. And the song is King of Broken Hearts. And this is just an absolutely gorgeous song. And Mm. Ringo taped it, sends the tape, uh, to George. Now, George, by 1998, was too ill uh, to travel, but he basically gets the tape. Ringo says, you've got a free hand. George records a solo, and Ringo recalls breaking down in tears when he heard the final result, and it was really the last time the two would work musically together. And if you don't know that track, because it's an album, I think it's a decent album, this is an absolute standout track. And if I were doing a compilation of solo material, sort of from around the anthology period, this is absolutely on that compilation. I think we'll need a Ringo and George playlist to go with this episode. I think we do. Work. Yeah, this is the last time that the two of them played together on a piece of music uh, in 1998. George passed away in 2001. And the album Ringo Rama in 2003 has a, you know, George's... And the album Ringo Rama in 2003 has Ringo's tribute to George, uh, written by Ringo, Mark Hudson and Gary Nicholson, called Never Without You, which is also a sweet song. Yes, it's a very nice uh, song. And uh, he says, you know, this is how I miss him in my heart and in music. And Eric Clapton plays on the track. Eric Clapton pops up uh, everywhere. And um, it, it it's it's kind of quite clever it mentions lyrics from within you without you it also references paul's song here today so it, it's it's a very heartfelt um tribute the other thing by way of tribute was um ringo's choice of song at the concert for george were you were you there i certainly think you know as as a you know as a, a as kind of a, a an end point or as a representation of the george and Ringo dynamic. The fact that Ringo sang Photograph at the concert for George is an extraordinarily poignant moment because the song obviously takes on this whole new meaning about memory and loss and what you had. And, you know, there's a giant photograph of George in the room. And it really kind of points to that special George-Ringo thing by having that song represented there in that way. I think so. And the fact that although George was credited as a co-writer, it's very much a Ringo song. And Ringo Starr was the only person on that stage that night that didn't just sing George Harrison songs. Paul sang, uh, you know, something and For You Blue and All Things Must Pass. Ringo 
sufficiently confident. And he says at the time, you know, I love George, he loved me. And he references the fact that the song has taken on a different meaning. And I think the fact that he was able to do that speaks volumes for their relationship. And it was one of the most emotional. It was a very emotional night. Yep. That was one of the most emotional things if you're looking at the DVD or the, the, the Blu-ray. Yeah, Ringo comes on, he does a Carl Parkins song, he does Photograph, and they are as much a tribute to George Harrison as any of the other George Harrison songs played on that night, and it's perfectly done. Yeah, George and Ringo, it was quite an unusual alliance and quite powerful at a, 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 at the time it was active. At the time, I, I think, you know, they were outselling John and Paul. They were getting better reviews than John and Paul. And you just think it, it's a wonderful tribute to their relationship. But I think commercially and critically, what, what could have been? You know, could they have sustained that? Perhaps it was, you know, lightning in a bottle. Perhaps it was something that was destined never to to be there for the long haul. Perhaps it was lightning in a bottle. The other kind of big what-ifs you think of was, well, what if post-Candlestick Park that there'd been a Lennon and McCartney access and a Harrison Starkey access, you know, putting out songs? Or the other big what-if is, well, what if after the big, you know, hullabaloo and, you know, success of All Things Must Pass and uh, Living in the Material World that you did have a Ringo and George album that was a bit more like the the Ringo album, a bit more pop, a bit more friendly, but they're both doing their thing, you know? I love Ringo as much as the next person. Sometimes a full album of Ringo is not what you want. Yeah. You want to mix it up a little bit. And a Harrison Starkey album in 1973-74 might have lifted some of the heaviness off George and might have lifted some of the weight off Ringo. I think a playlist is called for, as you say. I think a playlist is definitely called for. But what do you think, everybody? Uh, George and Ringo in the early 70s, a, a killer combo. Um, but as Stephen said, was it lightning in a bottle or was it something that uh, should have gone on for longer? What do you think? Let us know in all the usual places. Nothingisrealpond.com is the website. And the Nothing Is Real Facebook group run by Stephen. Join that. Over 7,000 people there chatting about the Beatles. Some people there even don't know it's a podcast. I think that's quite funny. <laughs> um, we're on uh, X at BeatlesPod. Um, we also pop up on Instagram, Mastodon, and uh, TikTok occasionally in all the usual places. But if you go through the website, you'll find us out there. And we've all our bonus episodes on ACAST+. Plus. Thanks again to all our ACAST Plus supporters. There's a whole other Nothing Is real verse present over there. But for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.